Episode 130 of the Bevan James Isles Show, an interview with Dr. Laura Pfeiffer. Radio team, welcome along to episode 130 of the Bevan James Isles Show, your fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime love of fitness so you can get all the benefits that go alongside it. Um, I've got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit sick and it's quite funny because I'm interviewing a doctor today and when I did interview, I actually interviewed her last week, uh, it's the second interview I did because I had a technical problem, uh, I was not sick and today I'm, I've been a bit miserable, I, I'm after, I don't get sick often and... Luckily for me, I'm not that sick. I'm just a little bit raw in my throat and I'm just a little bit sniffly through the nose. So uh, I'm not going to spend that much time talking to you guys before this interview today. But I'm really excited to put this interview on. Laura, uh, Dr. Laura Feither is somebody I know from my local gym. She's a doctor who's really passionate around exercise and has this real passion for kind of trying to influence and shift the way medicine looks at health um, and I'm not going to go into too much detail because Laura does a much better job of describing where, where she hopes that her industry will start or her field it's probably not so much of an industry but her field will move in the future around health and fitness and it's something that she's trying to develop herself around um, and it's just really interesting talking to a doctor around what do they consider health because when we think about it a doctor is often dealing with the effects of a bad lifestyle and Laura talks about this so I just thought it'd be a really cool idea to get Laura on the show and we have a really good conversation around uh, where she thinks health could go uh, some of the problems that she sees through health and some kind of things that we need to be thinking about as an individual so I'm going to put it on in a few seconds but before I do I just want to say thank you to the patrons of the show if you want to become a patron of the show just go to bevanjamesisles.com it's all very clear on the website you'll see a patreon link there you click on that and then every time I release the show you just donate as little or as much as you want and these people have been our patrons of the show Lana the queen of change kingy we've got Wendy Rockstar Schaefer we've got Louisa Kitchen Queen Crosby. I actually saw Louise Witt this morning. We've got Ella Boom Boom Pal Green. And then we've got uh, Dangerous Darren Busain. Now, when you become a patron of my show, I give you a nickname. So, once again, thank you to all the patrons. Anyway, I'm going to get straight into it, my interview with Laura because she's a bit of a rock star. Here we go. Okay, Tim, well, I'm doing part two because I'm this lovely lady next week, Dr. Laura Pfeiffer, she was, um, she came around to my house and did an interview a few weeks ago and I was pretty stoked for the interview and then I went to go process it a few days later and for the first time, I've been, I've been podcasting for over 12 years and I've never lost an interview and the first time ever, I was so stressed, I bought like, I bought a program to try to get it off the, the card but nothing happened, so luckily she's a lovely person and she's willing to do it again, so welcome along, Laura. Thank you for having me. Um, where do we start? So maybe just give us a little bit of a background on yourself. Okay, so I've uh, been a doctor, qualified doctor now for about two and a half years. I was trained at the University of Otago, uh, born and bred in, in Canterbury really, uh, but went down to uni in Otago. Uh, since then I've been doing my rotations at the Christchurch Public Hospital. Uh, in that time I've also done some postgraduate studies in obstetrics and gynaecology, so women's health. I've just 
um, halfway through a personal training degree as well, or certificate I should say, and looking to do a postgraduate studies in nutrition at the end of this year and hoping to get into the general practice training scheme. One thing, the good thing when you interview somebody twice is you kind of know what questions to ask. So <laughs> I, I remember in the last interview talking about how you knew pretty much from day one you wanted mm. to be a doctor. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so I suppose that was just early exposure to medicine. Uh, my mum was quite unwell when I was little. We're in and out of hospitals a lot. And I sort of looked at her doctors as superheroes and I thought, you know, what kid doesn't want to be a superhero when they grow up? And it was really the nature of her, particularly probably the doctors that she had who would you know, come sit down with you with a cup of tea and explain things. I thought, well, wow, that's really, really good medicine. And now I look when I can reflect back on that, I think, gosh, how much I would like to have the time to sit down with somebody and have a oh, cup really? of tea and with their family and talk with them. Um, but that really drew me into it. And then my next sort of definitely knew that I wanted to be a doctor. About five, six years old, we had um, a mufti day at school and it was sort of dress up like a superhero and I came dressed as a doctor because I thought that that was pretty cool. <laughs> pretty abs- man. <laughs> a bit, a bit, a bit abstract thinking. Um, and yeah, luckily it all worked out. I fortunately also just loved science. I loved the way the body worked. Um, just the complexity of how we move, um, how our bodies can fix themselves in a way. Uh, and just kept that interest right through school. I managed to get into medical school after my first year of health sciences. So that was... Um, which, is, which is actually a very challenging thing to do, isn't it? It's about... Uh, so for my university anyway, there's about 2,000 of us start out and about 150 get through. Wow. So if you're not getting A or A plus averages, you don't really get a look in. And were you, were you like... Obviously you're a very intelligent person, but was that a very much just you had to put like 100% effort in? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not skiting, but I suppose at, at high school I had a lot of interests. I did a lot of sport, played pretty much every sport under the sun. I also did a lot of debating and public speaking and leadership roles. So in terms of the amount of time I spent studying at high school was probably very, very mm. minimal. So I had to learn pretty quick, actually, when I got to university. I was around, surrounded, actually, by a lot of people. Um, my I went into a resident hall my first year. And... I was 17 when I started university, so I went into this uh, alcohol-free floor. Okay. And the alcohol-free floor actually just meant it was all of the um, scholarship winners from all around the country, really, and me and um, a couple of other younguns. So everyone around me had, you know, thousands of dollars worth of scholarship money, all of these accolades, and I thought, oh, I'm just someone who's really interested, but I haven't got this back up. Mm. So actually being around other people who knew how to study, I learned really quickly off other oh, people. So that you kind of had some mm. good role models. Was it, because I imagine, you know, like there's, there can be a perceived ego with doctors, you know, like because mm. it is a, is a certain level of intelligence it takes. And what was it like? Was it a very competitive environment in that place? You know, because if there's mm. 2,000 people aiming for 150 slots. Yeah. I suppose in a way there was, but you also sort of realise that you can't do it on your own. Oh, okay. You know, I could spend hours reading a textbook, but if somebody who already understands it knows uh, how to explain it to me in 10 minutes, then that's a better use of my time. Yeah. But for sure there was groups of us, um, you know, I've still got some really good friends from university who we just spent every waking moment either in the library or in our lectures or in a, a lab somewhere and that was just what we did for the first year. It's just the, jumping over those hurdles to get to the end goal, really. In regards to, you know, like obviously you learned to become a good studier and, and pass and become a doctor, but what did you learn about yourself that took mm. you to a deeper level through that time? Yeah, I suppose sometimes when I found it was getting really tough, I was really tired, I sort of thought, how do I want to feel at the end of this? Do I want to feel like I gave it everything I had? Mm. And 
uh, I thought if I worked day and night at it, then surely I should deserve to get, you know, what I want. And it's probably quite naive in thinking that. Um, I was pretty lucky it worked out. But I did learn that I can um, actually work. I've got a really good work ethic. Like Mm. I can manage working and I can manage still fitting in things that I need to do for myself so I still kept up with running um, that became my main thing at university I suppose because you could really just put your shoes on and go at any time and in Dunedin it was sometimes weather dependent but you could pretty much go anytime you wanted mm-hmm. take yourself out of the town get out of study mode just for an hour and relax and I found that was my soothing thing like was the thing that brought my stress levels down and made me refocus uh, I also knew that the days that I didn't exercise that I found that I felt actually quite foggy. Oh really? So actually even for your study it was a better investment of your time to put a bit of time into running? Yeah, so it meant that I got up at 5 o'clock in the morning and <coughs> sorry, did about half an hour or 45 minutes of a run or something like that. I found that I was much more productive and set up for my day. Mm. Um, I also found when studying for exams I used to have some a few interesting friends and you know we would study for an hour then they come run up knock on my door and say look quick we're going for a run around the park and we'll just bolt out the door run around the park come back sit back down for you know and that was five minutes of running but you know it was something that we did just to refocus get some fresh air and come back yeah when you get to the end of that period you know because it was that pretty much your whole university experience just like putting head down bum up pretty much I also was a bit silly and picked up some extra papers <laughs> so, more. so I did a, a study in indigenous so Maori indigenous studies uh, so that was just one paper went through the year and then I did a half a semester did an extra paper in bioethics just because I found that interesting and I thought mm. well medicine's a bit interesting in that you don't get to pick what you get to do you get told what you do um, I never had to pick papers so I thought well this is my probably my chance. my chance just to do something that I'm also interested in mm. when you get to the other side of that a, were you a little bit lost? Um, although mm. I imagine going into the world of being a doctor because they expect a lot of you. But, mm. you know, there's always this moment where you've peaked and been so focused for a period, which is really rewarding. Yeah. And then you're out of that world and suddenly you kind of got freedom. Yeah. But that can come with a bit of being lost. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think, you know, for a year I just thought, just get into medicine, just do it. Uh, that was all I was thinking about. And, you know, you sleep and dream about and... Then I did, I, when I got in, you sort of think, oh, well, now what's the next goal? Mm. And I think since then it's always been, what's the next goal, what's the next goal? So, and my second and third years at university, I sort of thought, well, still my, was to get good grades, and I did. I got sort of distinctions from my first few years, got a, another scholarship from the university for um, passing my exams really yep. well. And then I thought, came up and we do sort of three years of theory and three years of clinical, and then I got to my clinical years and I thought, but I'm still in this. Obviously, I, I've fooled them all. They actually think that I'm fairly all right and um, I can do this. But you start to get this, now what about the other areas of my life? And mm. it was starting to get that balance. So I was starting to do the practical side where, as a student, you basically did work sort of like a doctor. Obviously, no responsibility, but you tagged along with your clinical team. You had a few lectures throughout the day, but you were really doing the sort of eight to five work day. And I thought, well, this is a good good sort of practice a good time for me to establish other balance in my life um through that time and I think I did that reasonably well um but yeah you also there's this thing in medicine and all doctors tell you about it as well as that you feel like you're a fraud that you think that one day people will figure out that you don't actually know as much as you think you do and uh, you're always constantly trying to prove yourself and in your job you get you're always trying to um 
convince yourself that you're you're up to this and you're up to the responsibility yeah. of it and well know, it's such a big responsibility isn't it it is and my consultants sort of say the same thing they're like look you're going to feel like a fraud even once you're a consultant so you've been you know you've done an extra 15 years of study mm. um you still feel like maybe you don't know what you're doing yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. wow wow mm. so so um one thing that you you know you, I've known Laura for years, and Laura is very much a hardcore exerciser. Obviously, one of your other passions is kind of, you know, we we sometimes think that medicine is kind of the ambulance at the bottom of the hill mm. instead of kind of preventative medicine. So we know you have, a, or at least you do have a passion for fitness. Um, and I know from our last interview, you kind of have this area of how you see medicine, what you think medicine should be. Maybe just talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I suppose. The medical system was set up originally uh, to deal with acute disease, so infections, uh, trauma. You know, back in the day when people were dying of uh, tuberculosis or malaria, that sorts of things. Well, we don't really have that anymore. People are dying of heart disease and stroke and diabetes and high blood pressure, cancer. These are quite chronic diseases. They're not usually things that just pop up overnight. There are five, ten years at least in the making. And so I sort of think, well, why don't we try and reverse that before we get to that five to ten year mark if we know that this person's at high risk of having a stroke or high risk of having a heart attack? Why don't we intervene early and prevent that from happening? That makes Mm -hmm. more sense to me than being that, like you said, ambulance at the bottom of the cliff where we're really, we're sick care, we're not health care. Yeah. Mm. And so... When you talk about this, what, what, why, are, why are we in this place as a society, as a community, in regards to these kind of problems that are really probably more about the choices we make and the way we live our life yeah. um, than just kind of freak kind of medicine things? Mm. So we, why, why is this the case? Why are we in this, mm. in this modern time? Because you uh, think right now, you know, with the knowledge mm. of the universe, of, of the world, mm. you think of anything would be much better at living life. Well, like you said, I suppose... There's a few things. Um, one thing I'd start with talking about would be the fact that we are good and scientists have made things like vaccines and antibiotics. That's a development that uh, uh, is sort of more or less we don't see people in New Zealand or I know you've got lots of international listeners, but you don't see people dying with polio and with mm. tuberculosis and these things anymore because we've got vaccines and treatments for these things. We're also starting to live longer because of that. We're not dying of car accidents and all sorts of workplace accidents that people would die of early. Um, So we're starting to have time to develop these diseases. So that's why our lifestyles matter even more. Um, So we talk about these things called modifiable risk factors, which play a lot into disease. just some facts for you, say we look at cancers, all cancers, about 40% of cancer is preventable, but people don't realise that, they think cancer is something that I'm going to get by just living long enough, or um, heart attacks are in my family, uh, is something I hear a lot of, um, obesity is in my family. It's my genes. It's in my genes. Uh, yeah. But one thing we're now realising, and, and you know, the human genome was an amazing project, and I suppose after that we started a lot of people in the public do think oh something's in my genes I can't change that we're now starting to realize this new field of sort of epigenetics where we say actually you control the turning on and turning off your genes by choices that you make so that's so it's actually it could be or it could not be maybe in there but it's actually the way you behave really will determine if that's going to happen absolutely and they sort of they've done studies even looking at early days of life 
your environment will affect the way that your genes work the rest of your life. So um, if you eat certain foods, you exercise, um, you have the ability to turn on and turn off your genes. So it's not your destiny. We used to think, you know, your genetics was in this lockbox, but actually there's lots of things that you can do. You can avoid having high blood pressure, which is completely a preventable problem. Mm. Um, you can, apart from, actually, okay, there's a small very percent, which is a kidney problem, but we won't talk about that. Um, there's things like having high cholesterol, which you can reverse. There's being overweight, which, you know, is difficult, but you can avoid becoming overweight, even if it's in your genes and everyone in your family is supposedly overweight. Is that possibly that you're living in the same environment as people that are in an overweight environment? Um, you cannot smoke. You can drink alcohol moderately and you can have a diet which is rich in fruits and vegetables and fibre. And so I suppose that's, that's one thing I find interesting is, you know, we're really bad at... Uh, foreseeing the benefits and risks of our lifestyle choices now just what they're going to do in lots of uh in many years time so something that people say to me is though oh well by the time this affects me there'll be a cure for that oh, I think really? people i think people are overestimating our ability to treat things they think that one day some brilliant scientist is going to make a pill that'll fix all of the years of damage they've done to their bodies and that's not going to be the case. Um, so I suppose the question I'd have for you more of the behaviour side of things is sort of why are we so bad at underestimating prevention but overestimating treatment? Mm, mm. And, and it becomes an excuse, doesn't it? To not have to confront what I really have to confront because yeah. there's going to be a miracle cure. So yeah. why do I have to do that today? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's, you know, it's very difficult. I find that interesting dealing with patients and trying to educate them about this is just how much they believe uh, that what they can control, they, they underestimate what they can control and they overestimate the ability of us to, as doctors and medical professionals and scientists to look after them. Mm. They overvalue treatment and undervalue prevention. Why do you think it is? It's a good question. I hope you'd you'd know probably possibly more about that. I suppose that's a lot of to do with behaviours. Um, it's a bit to do with your sense of control or your locus of control, something that people talk about, your self-efficacy, how good you think that you can help yourself. And I think there's also, um, from the medical point of view, we need to actually empower and educate people a lot more. Um, for years there's been that sort of model uh, where doctors sort of held the key in Patients didn't really ask a lot of questions and didn't um, question why this treatment was being prescribed and doctors just sort of kept the kept things close to their, their guard. But really what I see is that doctors should be educating and empowering people to actually man manage their own health. I'd love to be useless and, you know, I'd love, yeah. that, I'd love that people didn't need doctors, but that's not going to ever be a reality. Um, but I think that we could do a lot more primary prevention. One thing you mentioned a lot in the last interview was mm. this whole idea of this functional medicine. Do you mm. want to talk a little bit about that? So functional medicine or integrative medicine, as the Americans call it, is a field of medicine now just like any field like general practice, a cardiologist, etc. A functional medicine doctor is somebody who says, yes, you still need to have a blood pressure pill, but this blood pressure pill will look will work a whole lot better for you if you also lose 5% of your body weight and you avoid XYZ foods that you're currently eating. So it's a bit of give and take. So functional medicine is saying let's combine uh, 
things that you can do in terms of your fitness, your health with medicine to um, to treat medical problems and hopefully reverse chronic medical conditions. So it's looking at particularly chronic medical conditions where, which I, like I said earlier, sort of accumulate over a decade. Uh, let's get in there early and prevent it from happening. So one thing I think I said in the last interview was, uh, don't know what the fag- figures are like around the world, but in New Zealand anyway, a type 2 diabetic diagnosed at the age of 40 who dies at 85 costs the New Zealand government about $800,000 to $850,000 wow. in medical care. Whereas if you give somebody who's a pre-diabetic and prevent them having diabetes, it'll cost you less than $10,000 to do that. So on an economics, it makes sense, functional yeah. medicine. So functional medicine is a prescription of exercise, it's diet, it's um, trying to encourage people to take care of their own health. But I mentioned like stress management and those types of things. And stress management, yeah. absolutely. I think um, stress is going is to, a, is a huge killer sleep, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah, sleep, sleep's so important. And we're only realizing now just the importance of sleep. Yeah. And so, so functional medicine will be where you go to a doctor, mm-hmm. but they have the ability to give medicine advice, but also really promote lifestyle choices and have the knowledge behind that. So like you're doing your personal training right now mm. is to build that repertoire to be able to do that kind of work. Yeah, absolutely. It's a more holistic look at somebody's overall health. So, you know, at the moment you go to a GP and you've got five or 10 minutes to say, these are the medical problems I've come to see you about. And now GPs don't have time unfortunately to address all 10 of things on your list they might get one or two if they're really good Um, whereas this is looking at saying well why don't I look at you as a whole person and say you know you never just isolated to got one medical problem you've usually got several or you've got several areas in your life that you could work on to help your own health Uh, so it's really looking at addressing all of those areas at once and taking you as a whole person and saying well this is Bevan he lives in this environment and this is his what his uh, works like this is what his fitness is currently like these are the foods he eats what little bits here and there can we tweak and what can I educate you more on so that you can do most of that health care yourself? And, and it's a really important thing to think about. Like I, I, I recently I did a healthy man check because mm-hmm. I've just been last year I turned 40. And, um, and I kind of thought, well, I know I'm really healthy. Mm-hmm. But there's a level of next level that you just don't know unless you go do things like your bloods and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. um, and I paid like 200 bucks. It wasn't cheap. But, it was, but I actually got the time with the doctor mm-hmm. because you're obviously paying a little bit more. You got, you know, so I spent like an hour with the doctor and they asked those types of questions. And, mm-hmm. and I was the model of health. You know, mm-hmm. because, of course. Yeah, well, because well, yeah. I, you know, it's the way I live my life. But, but it was, yeah. you know, like it was, to me, that's a part of being healthy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because there could have been things that I don't know, because you don't know until you do your bloods and type. And yeah. to me, that's kind of, when we think about, you know, lots of people who listen, because sometimes with the show, we are preaching to the choir, <laughs> um, that people who listen to a show like this show will probably have an awareness around health, and are probably, generally speaking, pretty good at health. Um, but, uh, you know, so... Something like going to see a doctor and having like a functional kind of session with them mm. would be so valuable, wouldn't it? And if we could promote, as you're saying, if we're just looking at the cost of society around what it costs for our health system, if that could be a way we look at going, you know, every person had to do a you know, functional test with a doctor mm. annually, mm. and it was something that, well, in New Zealand we live in a very kind of socialist kind of medical system, that was something the government funded. Well, it's such a good investment. Mm. But it also means, because it's that, you know, we talk about preventing the bad diseases, like your heart rate, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it's also the quality of life you're going to lead. Absolutely. You know, like if you're a healthier, fitter, 
weight and a good weight range, you, mm. you are going to lead a more, well, at least healthy life, aren't you? Yeah. And I suppose that's, like you've said, it's about the quality of your life. Yeah. Um, I think you can look at longevity and some people say, oh, I want to live to 100. Well, personally, I don't want to live to 100. I'd be happy to get to 80 as long as those are quality life. years yeah. of, of life. Yeah. Uh, and I suppose that's what we're starting to see now is actually a lot of these modifiable uh, or chronic diseases hitting people younger and younger. So uh, like I think we are just talking about earlier before we started recording was I've just started dealing a lot with people with stroke and stroke mm-hmm. is actually uh, I think they said something like in the last 20 years the age group of people aged 30 to 50 has increased by more than 46 percent really so people having strokes younger wow and that's young that's young and what are your major risk factors for stroke is actually having high cholesterol and high blood pressure both two things that you can prevent from happening oh, and smoking good. which is something that, you know as well but, so but it's, it's just sad, isn't it? It's sad. And, you know, we're sort of saying, if you have a massive stroke, you can you may never walk again. You can have difficulties communicating with your loved ones. You know, you, you will never work again. You're limited in society, aren't Completely you? limited yeah. in society. And it's horrifying to see people in their sort of mid-50s having strokes, which means that they're completely disabled for the rest of their, their days, really. Wow. Um you know, seeing people having their heart attacks. I also did cardiothoracic surgery. So with the people that do bypass surgery on people's hearts, so many people in their 50s having these huge major cardiac operations because essentially their the blood supply to their heart muscles is so clogged full of atherosclerotic or fatty plaques that they at any minute could drop dead from a massive heart attack. And it's purely just lifestyle choices. It's lifestyle choices, yeah. Oh. And... Um, it's sad, you know, it's, it's really sad to say, you know, if somebody had educated you 15 years ago, this could have been a preventable thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so let's talk about some of the, the ideas of, you know, one thing you've got in your little notes here is humans are notoriously bad at assessing long-term benefits and risk of their lifestyle choices. <laughs> so you've you kind of said, well, there's kind of four areas of target. So what, what are those areas? And let's look in a little bit more depth around them. Okay, so one we've sort of mentioned already is, say, sleep. And yeah. I think... Sleep for me has been quite interesting because... Especially your world because it does <laughs> work so much. Well, that's, well that's, that's true. I think I, I've probably got a bit of a selfish interest actually now in sleep. Um, as being someone who used to sleep well less than six hours a night mm. and now the, sort of, the research is saying if you're getting less than six hours of sleep at night, you're at risk of so many things uh, like Alzheimer's disease, like type 2 diabetes. There's some interesting facts around that. So a bad bad night's sleep, uh, I think so, less than six hours. The next day, you're 25% more insulin resistant. So what that means is that when you, you crave sugar, um, you crave those sorts of foods that give you that quick hit of energy, but you're also worse at metabolizing those sugars. So you're sitting uh, with higher blood glucose levels, which damages your vessels and etc etc so you think years of poor sleep mm. you're increasing your risk for type 2 diabetes also with poor sleep is uh so deep wave sleep so that really good deep sleep that you get is important for lots of things so in that deep sleep is when the brain cells are getting washed with uh cere- cerebral spinal fluid so you see cf fluid taking away the metabolic wastes that your brain is throughout the day or the work it's doing, taking away the waste from the cells. So if you're not getting enough sleep, you're not actually cleaning or getting the lymphatic drainage out of your brain, so you're predisposing your brain to 
uh, build-up of these things called amyloid beta plaques, which are the pathology underlying Alzheimer's disease. So poor sleep can increase your risk for Alzheimer's disease. Um, so I find that quite interesting. Uh, and there's just other things we know about sleep that, in general, that you function better. Oh. You feel more likely to exercise. You're better to make better food choices. You learn better. Um, like I sort of said, the going for a run helped my foggy foggy brain. Um, so yes, yeah, sleep is actually really important to prevent your risk of type two diabetes and Alzheimer's. And Alzheimer's is a, a disease I'm quite interested in, just because of how uh, the incidence and prevalence of it around the world has increased dramatically. And we wonder why is that happening? Why is this disease that we didn't see so much of? Is it purely because we're just living longer? Um, whereas scientists say, well, you can have a predisposition to it, and Aging is a very small part of that, actually. It's a lot to do, again, with your lifestyle, that lack of sleep, um, social engagements, social interactions, and exercise reduces your risk by increasing the blood flow to your brain and lots of these really good growth factors that protect the nerves and synapses within your brain. So so for those, what, what, what's kind of the medical recommendation around sleep? Mm. And, and what are for those who are listening to us who maybe deep down know they don't sleep that well, mm. if I was to see you, what kind of advice would you give me around how to sleep? Yeah, so we think the sort of golden hours are about eight to ten hours of sleep a night. Oh, wow, which so it's I, actually got longer. Which is quite a lot. Yeah, yeah and I think, um, you know, a lot of us just would never manage ten hours of sleep. No, but no. I think if you're aiming for eight hours of sleep, I think that's a really good... We say six hours is too little. Um, more than 10 hours is probably more than what you need. Um, but eight hours, I think, is your golden mark. Yeah, but, but, so then we look at, like, like someone's going to say, yeah, well, eight hours, mate, I, I can't stop my head from thinking, you mm-hmm. know, like I, I can't get to sleep when I go to bed. So mm-hmm. how, what kind of advice do you get around those? Yeah, and I think that's one thing I found is I looked at why can't I sleep so good or why is it even when I feel mentally or physically exhausted I can't sleep? Uh, a lot of that stress, so stress management. Um, you've talked to me a lot about sort of meditation. That's something I've been trying to sort of work into my life a mm-hmm. lot more. Also the fact that I was drinking sort of five or six cups of coffee a day. Okay. So I, yep. I cut that out. I went for a, a caffeine cleanse and now I have one a day and it's in the earlier part of the day. So that's, I think, a lot of high-stress people tend to also have quite a high caffeine increase yeah. uh, intake. So I think some things you can try and do is reducing your caffeine, uh, reducing stimulant food late at yep. night. We talk about sleep hygiene, so that's having getting away from screens yep. about two hours before bedtime. Um, some people find music relaxing. Some people find having a hot drink. Uh, so it's just setting yourself up for a good night's sleep. If you Google sleep hygiene, there's this, you know really? ten good steps that you should go through, and you sort of look at them. And you go, oh, how's that actually going to help? But if you do all ten of those things, you will have really a good well. night's sleep. Mm. And also, you know, if you've listened to the show, you, you may have heard me talk about this. But it's this whole idea of what's my setup behaviour. And the example I often give of sleep is that if I pick up my phone when I go to bed, mm. I'm not going to go out and night's sleep, or at least I'll get less sleep. Mm. You know, I might get a good night's sleep once I go to sleep, but if I pick up my Kindle and start reading, I'm, I'm asleep in ten minutes. Yep. And I just know about myself that mm. okay, when I go to bed. I pick up my Kindle because I know sleep's really important. And it's kind of, you know, what are the behaviours that help you set up? It might be setting up an alarm to go off at 9.30 because you know you'll end up watching TV till 10.30. Mm. You know, it's just that kind of, like I've, I've actually got that on my phone because go, we go to bed at about 9, normally sleep about 9.30, 10. Um, but I'm up at 4.40, so it's, you know, but um, I have an alarm goes off at quarter past nine, bedtime. And it mm. just, you know, and I... You know, I kind of embed anyway, but it just reminds me, and you know, and then I just pick up my book, and I'm asleep within 10, 15 minutes. Mm. 
And I'm like you, you were saying there, like for me, I have never really thought of the long-term cost of not sleeping. Mm. But for me, I just love being in a high-functioning place. Mm. And I know that if I don't do that, mm. the next day's a bit crap. Yeah. You know, and it does come at a cost. And so, um, yeah, that whole idea of what's my setup behaviors is another way to look at it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so then we talk about nutrition. What are some mm. of the things? Yeah. Uh, so obviously, it's a pretty big subject. But massive subject. It's probably its own, own talk, but just briefly sort of saying that we're now training medical students that were in the UK and America to do this thing called culinary medicine, which is basically looking at people's medical problems and prescriptions and the diets that actually work well for those. So obviously things like a diabetic diet is quite low in sugar, but there's also um, lots of evidence for ketogenic or high-fat diets for neurological problems, and uh, lots of, obviously there's been, uh, some people might know about ketogenic diets for children with autism or children with epilepsy, and these children that have gone onto these ketogenic diets and the number of seizures they have per year dramatically decreasing Um, and children with autism being able to go back into mainstream schooling and that sort of thing so there is a lot to do with diet um, that we can look at also just general things like your arthritis having things like turmeric and anti-inflammatory foods can affect uh, your condition your symptoms on a deeper level what's also now saying the foods you eat affect your genes. So that, again, that epigenetics, the effect of the foods I eat will turn on and turn off particular genes in my body. So if I know that I've got these genes from mum and dad that predispose me to this condition, maybe I need to be a bit more careful about what foods I eat that could turn those on or off. You know, So it's, a, it's a having that knowledge. Um, obviously, we always talk about having lots of fruit, vegetables, having a high-fibre diet, Um, is all really important avoiding processed foods a lot of the issues in New Zealand come around our high meat intake um, processed meat particularly and our increased risk for bowel cancer so bowel cancer is a really big problem uh, in societies like ours that have a lot of meat and red meat particularly so again saying well perhaps if I knew in advance that I had a predisposition uh, in my family for bowel cancers maybe I'd be very a lot more careful about the amount of processed meats that I eat and, and for those who are listening to this, because, you know, so kind of what you're saying here is that there is different nutrition strategies that we can use based on mm. what we know about your health or your history or your, yes. you know. Um, and so if I'm listening to this and I know that I have a long history of, let's say, heart disease or mm. stroke or something like that, uh, who would I want to go see for that? Would that be a functional medicine doctor? Or functional is it- medicine doctor, absolutely. And the the concept of functional medicine is that you don't work isolated. It's a really, it's a, a, a collaborative approach. So I'd say, look, like I said, I'm doing my personal training. I want to do a nutrition course, but I'm not expecting that I'm going to be able to manage uh, my patients fully in terms of all of the exercise needs and all of their nutrition. But I can get you started, and then I can refer you to my colleague who is a dietitian, yep. or I can refer you to my colleague who is a, a personal trainer. Um, so that's sort of the, the functional medicine approach is that collaborative approach of having lots of specialists around to address all of those areas Uh, so yeah you'd want to see somebody like a dietitian who can look at those things and look at your uh, profile so we can do blood tests and look at what nutrients you might be missing out on what what about one of the one of the hard things with nutrition is kind of uh you know there's a million people out there who say they're experts and uh, are selling yep concepts um and so it's a, it's a very confusing area for the average joe to navigate through so yeah. 
What would be your advice around that? Yeah, and there's a lot of cowboys around who can do a sort of, you know, 10-week course and say they're a nutritionist yeah. and they may not have the right intentions there. So I suppose that's why I like the idea of a functional medicine where we work, uh, doctors work in fully evidence-based medicine. So I can't recommend something to you until I've done a study with at least, you know, a few thousand people and shown a, a genuine uh, mm. benefit or risk in xyz things that we're studying that what the outcomes were so i suppose that's why i like uh it's difficult and people get sold a lot of things um i see patients coming to me saying i stopped taking my blood pressure pills because um my homeopath gave me this oil that's you know cost 200 dollars a bottle to buy um and they said that'll fix it and i don't need to take pills anymore and they come on with sky high blood pressure and you think that person's been sold yeah so cool and then that same person will complain about their $3 script charge, but that's sort of, <laughs> again, that's that saying where, where you're sort of undervaluing prevention. Mm. So, um, well, it's easy to sell to desperate people, isn't it? Absolutely. That's, that's, actually, I read a really interesting book recently. It was kind of about how to be an expert. <laughs> um, and, and one of the things which was quite concerning, really, that this guy was promoting was this whole idea of um, always try to be, so he said, you know, there's kind of the base knowledge, he said, go to the left or right of it, you know, mm. go to this kind of, not, you know, just, just a little bit out of it, and then don't go to the extreme. So mm. don't, sorry to say, you know, there was that lady who tried to say she never ate. So that's the extreme, mm. that's just stupid. But kind of go with nutrition, you might go, okay, this diet here is the key to success for everybody. Yeah. Um, and that's what differentiates you from mm. everyone that helps you to sell, which is kind of what you're really saying is you're not really going with the core science of the day. Now, yeah. admittedly, science shifts, and, and the way we look at nutrition in 30 years from now will probably be different, right? now but we still have to kind of base it on what's the best advice we have right now and it's easy to get caught up in someone who's really good at selling a pitch Mm. um and because they're trying to sell us the thing we're desperate at or just really want to find the answer to um but we've got to back the people who have the best understanding of something yeah and i think you know one of your red flags is someone who's trying to sell you products or um yeah which are very expensive products that you might not need and that's why you need to, you need, ideally you should talk to your doctor about anything that you're taking as well. You know, mm. people do often forget to tell us what vitamins they're taking and and all those sorts of things. And, you know, I'd hope a functional medicine doctor would honestly tell you what you should and could be taking and the effects it could have on you here. With weight loss, just because mm. lots of people want to lose weight, mm. as a doctor, what kind of advice do you give around weight loss? So it's interesting. And the sort of conventional medicine that I was I've been taught in is we don't really talk about physical activity and we don't talk about nutrition so we've actually got very poor knowledge generally amongst amongst my profession which is is concerning isn't it when you kind of talk about how all these problems that we have are preventative Mm. through lifestyle choices yeah you know like and and you guys come with respect and people will listen to you like it's yeah yeah. I probably had maybe two or three hours tops of um, teaching on nutrition and you know, other otherwise you just get sort of fed these things to say to people, but you need to fully understand it. And I suppose, like you said, weight loss isn't easy. Um, weight loss is, is, yes, calories in, calories out, but it's more than that. There's hormones and, mm. and it's taken into account that some people have just general different physical ability to, to exercise than others. But physical activity is for everyone and it's finding what works for that person. Um I think as well, maybe having a doctor or someone who's not a family member has some accountability. So if I say, look, I work alongside you, I imagine you do the same sorts of things with your health coaching as you say, well, I'm not 
in your intimate group of people so you can tell me the things that you're struggling with and you can tell me mm. your failures and you can tell me your successes and we can work together and see well what why didn't it work this time around and what can we do next time it's just talking that person through that stages of change and saying you know yep you slipped up that's fine we're not perfect but we go back and we try again mm. um, I suppose that's why I I know fitness is obviously very important to, to both of us but it's more than an aesthetic thing it's oh, it's yeah. more than just a weight loss tool um, fitness you, I think is quite motivating if you think well actually I'm exercising because of all these other reasons as well or the other benefits that go alongside it yeah. um, can be more motivating yeah. Yeah. Um, let's go into physical activity then. Mm. So, so you know, I know you're very passionate about this, but mm. uh, maybe talk to me about some of the areas that are concerning for a doctor in physical yeah. activity. So our guidelines say that you should exercise for 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity aerobic exercise. Um, or they're now saying perhaps 75 minutes of high intensity interval training. Um, but the people that actually do that recommendation is about 20% of the population. And that's, just, and that's the base recommendation. That's the bare minimum yeah. saying, you know, 150 minutes, so that's what, quick maths, about yeah. 22 minutes a week, a day, sorry, 22 yeah. minutes a day over a week. It doesn't seem like a heck of a lot to somebody who, like yourself, probably exercise for at least an hour a day. Yeah. Um, but, for, you know, 80% of the people around you aren't doing that. Um, we recommend, so at least within those minutes that you do a mixture of cardiovascular training so that's your aerobic getting a sweat on um, getting your heart rate up also two days of sort of resistance based training so focusing on uh, your strength and, and muscle endurance um, that's got benefits obviously for things like your balance and stability so preventing falls in older people but uh, also increasing your bone mass and sort of just general muscle strength as well. You've got your movement as a miracle drug. It is. So, I, you know, I've obviously a big sell on this, but it is, you sort of say, when we look at all medical conditions, there's never been shown that exercise is negative for that medical condition. It's either equivocal or will have benefit on that medical problem. So... I sort of, I think I've got some sort of line there that says something like, you know, exercise is a miracle drug. It's 100% effective even in a small dose and it doesn't have side effects like so many of our, our medications do. And I'm not saying don't take your medication, but... There's often there a, a cost that comes with it, isn't there? Isn't there a beautiful yeah. combination where you could be doing things for yourself as well as taking medications and eventually you may not need those medications. But yeah, so that's why I just think exercise is this brilliant thing um, that is going to help all areas of your life if you can commit to it and do it and enjoy it and and, and, you know because you've got here also the the sedentary risk of of, you know like if people are sedentary they've got massive risks to bring on those diseases you talked about earlier haven't they absolutely so sedentary people are sort of you know more than four times the risk of all sorts of things like heart attack like stroke like developing alzheimer's disease like developing cancer so sedentary lifestyle is a huge risk factor which is unfortunately really common yeah um and like i think i said kids the recommendations for kids exercises to be out just being physically active running around playing games for at least 60 minutes a day on average i think this was an american statistic is that the average child has 70 minutes of physical activity a week so about a day's worth over a whole week um which is about the equivalent of what uh so somebody who lives in prison gets about 70 minutes a week of outdoor activity so you just think about well, essentially we're treating our we're doing the wrong thing by our kids and really if we're not 
developing these healthy lifestyles early, then we're just setting ourselves up for failure in adulthood. And, and massive costs. Mm-hmm. And also the thing of that whole idea of, um, like I remember reading some research or reading something and they're talking about how there'll be a level of kids who've never experienced any real exercise and mm. when they become adults they'll literally think they're dying when they're exercising like yeah. you know because the level of exercise that you and I all exercise at which is pretty hard if you literally feel like they're dying and also mm. they have no history or experience of exercise so yeah. once you get to that point it's really hard to create a habit whereas if you've been brought up with exercise in your life it's mm. kind of just how you maintain your life and if we're not giving that to our kids no. oh, what a problem absolutely and that's I suppose where you know we've got to have a bit of interest in health policy and you know putting pressure on our governments to say look unfortunately not all of our, the parents are doing it but schools should be getting at least oh. their kids out doing you know 45 minutes of maybe structured exercise and that obviously child's play is slightly different to adult exercising but you know needs to be a key part of the curriculum and a key part of growing up um you know i still remember the first child diagnosed with type 2 diabetes she was nine um you know and i was a good 20 years older and weighed you know 20 kilos less than she did and you just think this poor nine-year-old child who's already been prescribed pills which are for a chronic medical condition uh just how much that's going to affect her life her life path is going to be completely different to a child who's completely uh, healthy running around swimming on their bike having yeah. a good time when they're nine years old it's just a completely different life to the the life that this child will now lead it's pretty specific one thing you hear which i really like is that exercise makes you younger on a cellular level it does it does so uh there is this is a bit of a science behind this um i'll try and briefly run over it but it's we can say we did a study uh i think it was on a cycle so 45 minutes of cycling and they measured a uh the blood of the people after their 45 minutes cycling found this thing called nrf1 which i think is um neurotropic respiratory factor one i think it stood for but basically this is a chemical which acts on your genes so the telomeres are these little caps that live on the ends of our chromosomes and they generally shorten with time so the more times a cell replicates these telomeres get shorter once they get short and they stop protecting our dna that's when things like mutations and damage to the cell happens and that cell will die so if you are exercising and you're creating lots of this nrf1 what you're doing is essentially putting the oil on the decking or like creating a special protection on your chromosomes so that that cell is going to be a healthy cell for longer and turn over and have the ability to replicate for longer so uh so if you think about it like that you're going to live a longer life you're going to appear younger because you've got less cellular damage um so that's just one part of it but also things like apparently your skin actually your skin people that exercise have better skin so you know your appearance is going to be better by exercising and, and as much as i don't really care to promote um image it doesn't motivate people so that you know there's, there's a yeah. good thing to think about yeah isn't it? absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and so for those who you've worked with who have struggled mm. um what's the advice you give them to get into exercise uh you know it, it's very case by case you've got to find something that you love doing yeah um i think the early stages what i try and do is get a motivation or a reason why they want to why this is a good thing for them to do um a lot of people know they're like well exercise yeah it's good for me 
I know you're telling me to do it but you need to make it on a deeper level for them so you say well you know if you have a heart attack and you don't see your grandkids or you don't see your daughter mm. get married or you don't see this how does that matter to you and they go oh yeah of course that matters to me I'd love to be there for those things and you say well why don't we start by thinking about those things when we go for our 20 minute walk three times a week mm. and you build up over time so somebody like you said that's never exercised and feels like death when they're exercising needs to have that okay let's start with just walking walking is a brilliant exercise it's accessible it doesn't cost a lot of money we'll do uh three 20 minute walks a week come back and see me in four weeks time okay now we're going to do five 20 minute walks a week now we're going to do half hour walks you know and you just build it up with, with time and some people might say well you know i love i love playing rugby great join a social rugby team get out play some mm-hmm. rugby mix things up i think um having a bit of variety is key to keeping people in, involved in their exercise as well um, and then I look to people like yourself who have you know you've, you've got those motivation tips to help people um, really get into that higher level of exercise mm. but you don't have to be an athlete you know physical activity doesn't have to be done in the gym um, you can be somebody who never touched foot in a gym but you are somebody who loves to go running or walking or hiking or mountain biking or you like playing social team sports fine do those things yeah so it's really important Mm. because because it's um and and one thing i'll say again if you listen to you you know my kind of advice but uh is that you know start at the right level Mm. you know because if you ask someone who's an exercise in a long time the expectation is going to have to make you feel disappointed. And there's so much emotional stuff that goes around there. We probably won't touch on that today, but um, it is so much of a journey to overcome your kind of own head as you go to exercise. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I suppose, why I like this, the fact that I, maybe I'm doing personal training for a lot of people in those initial stages. It's actually really confronting to actually go and find a personal trainer because there's that expectation that oh god I've got to now go see this person for half an hour and pay them so much money and I'm not even at that level yet Mm. whereas you can engage with somebody with a bit of base knowledge and say well let's get you going and then you'll probably find a bit more confidence that going to find a personal trainer is not so intimidating that first time you do it yeah Mm. um last subject we'll talk about is kind of loneliness is is a killer Mm. so I've just finished uh, my geriatrics run and one of my bosses said, always said to me, I want you to ask about, you know, you do your, your basic medical history, but at the end I want you to say, are you lonely? Um, and I said, oh. Well, to to the people you work yeah, with? Yeah, to, okay, to yep. patients. I said, this is, uh, you should be asking patients how lonely they are. And I thought initially that's a bit of an odd thing to think about. Um but there's actually a lot of studies that say loneliness is a killer. So people that are don't have as many social connections are at higher risk of, um, again, having poor health, making poor health decisions. Again, things like Alzheimer's disease is really um, can be slowed down by the amount of social interaction, social stimulation mm. that you have. Uh, so I ran a thing, a memory clinic, and this is people with sort of early Alzheimer's dementia and the advice would say is get exercising but also increase your social activity mm. join groups um, do th- learn new things so it's not just good enough to do puzzles because that's you know crosswords everyone says oh if you do your crosswords you'll you know you'll prevent Alzheimer's but that's knowledge you already have you need to really be searching for new knowledge and yeah. you do that by interacting with other people and learning off of other people and learning new things so um 
that social connection factor is really important. Uh, lone, and unfortunately, we now live in a society where we sort of don't need each other as much as we mm. did. You know, it's not we're not in war times. We didn't need to borrow something off the neighbour, so we don't bother to meet our neighbours. And it's really quite sad. It's not the way that humans were designed. Um, we were we're designed to grow yeah. to, to be in communities, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, in the world where you yeah. see the healthiest people, so there's actually a small island. I think it's somewhere off um, an Italian, somewhere off Italy, so in a small Italian island, they've got just as many, it's one of the only places in the world where women and men live the same length of time. Okay, wow. Um, so normally a woman lives yeah. about six years longer than a man, um, but they've got the most centenarian, uh, centenarians in the world as well, so wow. all these people living over 100, and so a researcher went over and said, "Why? what is it about these people? Why are they living well over 100, and why the men live just as long as women here and the only thing they came away with was actually they're always surrounded by people they were always surrounded by family the mm -hmm. if they had a granddaughter or a niece somebody was always looking after them their kitchens were always full with people eating together and sharing together and learning together communicating together so that was the only difference there wasn't any special diet particularly that they had there wasn't anything special in their um, working life or their background that made these people live to 100 they thought purely the only thing that was different to these people to people that live less is that they're always surrounded by people wow mm. and, and it's also that thing of um we are a lot more time poor in today's modern mm. world you know you know if you go back 30 40 years ago we didn't work as much and, and it tended to be only the man would work and you know it's mm. kind of more debts come into society yep. um we've worked more mm. and so we are so time poor and, and the thing that we deprioritize is often time with others yeah absolutely you know uh i think france has some of the best health in the world and they've got something like a 35 hour work week yeah which is different to uh say somewhere like America who they work I think on average something closer to 55 hours a week yeah. is average well that, that book Affluenza which talks about that they mm. talk about in Affluenza they, you know, they, they, which are the happiest country and which has the most depression it was kind of like a, the, the America was kind of the most depressed place mm. and I think it was the Norwegians were the most happiest place and, yeah. and it was just talking about the difference in perspective so mm. in America if you're working longer hours you're seen they talk about the man in the house um, that in America you're seen as a good husband mm. if you work longer hours because mm. you're providing for your family and that means you work harder mm. uh, in Norway uh, if you work longer hours you're frowned upon because mm. you're neglecting your family yeah. and, and and you know and just so you can see how that difference in mindset is Absolutely. where we prioritize that where we're going to use our time mm. and um, but the health benefits for the Norwegian is massive because mm. You know, it's just the flow and effect of that. Mm. And it is one of those things, like, I woke up at 30 and I had a real a moment where I realised I was a lonely person. Mm. From the outside, I was a very successful person, mm. but in chasing success, I had a neglected relationship. Yeah. And um, it was a real eye-opening moment for me. And in mm. uh, letting, in uh, developing this sense of connection in my life with mm. those more than just one person, um, I had to let go of some of the things that gave me so much esteem and that was mm. a challenge in itself. But I do think it's really important when we think about a healthy person that it will have good, healthy social interaction. And I think there's probably something to think about as well. It's not just social interaction because there's a lot of shit people in life. Mm. And, and to fill yourself with people who bring good to your life, who have the ambition, who want to have fun, you know, like mm. really healthy interaction is mm. so, so valuable. 
I think it's really interesting, you know, with the advent of things like social media and things, we can have so many superficial connections, mm. but actually the number of deep connections we have is less and less. And it's, yeah, when we talk about social connection, it's not about the number of friends you have on Facebook, but actually the amount of people that you sit down in the week and have a personal conversation with who knows yeah. you well and um, that you do that is that sort of like either an intimate partner or a somebody who knows you really, really well. Yeah. yeah so I think, like you said, that's a very important thing that we need to value a lot more and that's a society problem, isn't it? Yeah, well, and also that thing, like you talk about loneliness, but if we mm. look at depression, like a lot of people in their hardest times, they withdraw. Mm. You know, and we all know when we're having a tough time, we can sit down with a good mate and have it just let your shit out. Yeah. You know, it helps, you know. And so if we yeah. can learn that actually, if we can build a good social network of people around us yeah. and we can feel we can access it at any time, mm. it's, it's got to be good for you. Absolutely. I mean, even in my recent work, the, we have this thing called sort of broken heart syndrome where oh, okay. you'd see in uh, a couple that have been married for 60 odd years um, and then one of them dies the other dies not long after okay, it's yeah. usually within a year of the other and you're just like well how does that happen or why is that that suddenly one dies and then the other dies but it just seems to be the way that it, wow. it happens it's um, an interesting phenomenon that we don't really understand I can't explain that to you by um, or research you know, or anything research like that yeah, yeah. yeah it's just something that we see a lot of wow. mm. um, so, so just for lastly like, mm. what do you hope to be in 10 years of your own career like what's what's the ambition mm. for you uh so in 10 years time i would love to have a a medical center which was more than a medical center where i had uh myself i had a psychologist i had um counselors i had nutritionists or dietitians i had um personal trainers all working together nurse practitioners who were highly skilled in educating people um, I'd love to be working with people to keep them well. Mm. Um, I'd love to be writing lots of letters and getting lots of attention on medical and public health issues and putting pressure on our governments to make healthy policy changes. I think we've been fortunate in the last few years that our, our governments are making some changes, things like our smoke-free policies and that, that sort of thing, but there's so much more pressure we could be mm. putting on them. Um, and... I suppose as a way um, also modeling to my patients a life that I would love them to lead so I, you know I can't I can't be an overweight um, smoking doctor telling yeah. you to quit smoking yeah. and lose weight um, so, so lead, lead by example yeah. Um, but yeah I'd love to be able to influence communities and see healthy communities so I think that our health begins with um, with the community yeah. so putting work into communities uh, volunteering uh, doing free exercise classes all those sorts of things is ways that we can get look at helping everyone sort of I think I said in the last interview about when we look at public health models we don't actually see benefit in tackling the most severe end of the spectrum if we invest our resources into making the you know sickest 10% of people healthier we don't generally have a healthier society what we do is if we can make a minimal uh increase in health for a lot of people then we see massive massive changes yeah so i suppose it's part of that as well and just lastly for Mm. those listening what would you say if there's kind of an affirmation or a statement i don't know if that's the right term but um to the way you look at your health is what 
I suppose it's a reflection of your values. Um, if you value your health, you know, there's that old health is wealth. It depends what, what you prioritise in your life. I think if you prioritise your health, you're going to live a life and have the uh, better chance at getting the things that you want to have. Mm. Um, I, yeah, that's a difficult one. I, I think there's so many aspects to it that you can't include into one small affirmation. But mm. I think... Um, if it's something that you're constantly working at or thinking at, it doesn't you don't have to be perfect, but if you keep working at a good health or the life that you want to lead and you're thinking about it before it's the end of the cliff. So you're you know, talking about prevention here. So if you can be uh, in a preventative state of mind rather than waiting for illness to enter your life, then you're going to lead a healthy life. Yeah, I totally agree. It's, um, mm. Just that whole thing of be Put, put health in your awareness. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and grow in that way. You know, that's, you know, because there's so much good stuff here today. And, um, you know, it's obvious that if you put your health in your kind of awareness and make the idea of evolving and getting better yeah. at it, you're going to live a better life. So it's things like you said, going and getting your healthy men or yeah. healthy woman's checks. And um, well, it was quite fascinating because quite a few listeners who work in the medical field said, they really appreciated me talking about that on the show because mm. men, to, to, oh, she'll be right kind of attitude. Yeah. And to me, it's just about being having health as a priority. Yeah. Okay, I'm 40, you know, things, I'm getting older, you know. Like. Yeah, and I think that's an important part, particularly I'd, like I do, I'd say I urge men a lot often, more often to do those sorts of things. I mm. think women get a little bit of an intervention when they're in their 20s and 30s having children and yeah. babies because they come into hospital and we sort of say, oh, you need to get control of your blood pressure and you need to be uh, okay. controlling your blood sugar. So they get that wee mm. chat a bit earlier, whereas some men don't turn up into hospital until it's a little bit late. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I really encourage people to to just get a general checkup every so often. You know, it doesn't have to be if you've got good health, then every two three yeah. years is fine. Um, but you don't know these things until you get them checked out. So it's I encourage. And if you have got stuff, you want to find out ASAP, don't you? You want to know sooner rather than yeah. later because you're in that golden window of uh, turning things around. Yeah. 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 Hey, thank you so much for your time and thank you for doing it again because my technology cracked me up. But um, I really appreciate your time. Um, if people want to get in contact with you. Um, I mean, I love hearing from like, like-minded people. Sometimes you feel a bit isolated. Um, mm. If you wonder if some people think you're just a bit nuts, you know, some of my bosses when I say to them, actually, I want to prescribe, talk, I want to deal with healthy people. They look at me and think, oh, well, you're just a bit of a waste. But, um, <laughs> but you know, yeah, just people that are interested. I guess they can contact me through you if they wanted to. But um, yeah, yeah, I'm always really happy and hopefully. In 10 years' time, you'll see me in my own practice doing something that I'm really passionate about. Mm. Good on you, mate. Love your work. Mm. Thank you very much for your time. I hope you got a lot from that. There's, there's, you know, there's kind of a lot of information in there. And I do love the idea of this functional medicine. And I, I... you know, the, many different areas are moving forward. And, and, you know, like, it's interesting when we think about any area of thinking that, you know, it's always an evolution. And if we look at medicine, you know, you read some books from a couple hundred years ago and, and they're quite laughable with the medicine. Uh, and and you think that maybe in a couple of hundred years from now, they'll look at the way we deal with medical problems and they'll probably may think it's quite laughable right now. And, and some of this approach of functional medicine, to me... It just seems so logical, doesn't it? It seems logical to think that, well, it's not the ambulance at the end of the cliff. It's it's kind of that prevention and and teaching people how to use a good lifestyle to to have a healthier life. 
and particularly in those areas where we can avoid bad health and that's obviously some of the problems that Laura was talking about so hopefully you got a lot from the interview with Laura I really enjoyed talking to her I actually did it twice so I got to talk to her twice and uh, in the first interview we talked about dealing with death which we didn't actually talk about in this one here it was quite interesting talking to her I'm curious about a doctor their job is dealing with death a lot and um yeah, we had a good, interesting discussion around that. So maybe I'll get Laura back on in the future and we can talk about some other good subjects around health and fitness and medicine. So anyway, that's uh, pretty much this show done and dusted. If you want to email me, you can email me at bevanjames at gmail.com. If you want to support the show, just go to bevanjamesisles.com to become a patron. And that's pretty much it. I'm going to rock and roll and get out of here. I'm going to go down. I'm, I'm going to watch an art. I'm going to, Sunday afternoon. It's miserable weather. I'm a bit crook, so I'm going to go watch a bit of a movie on the couch. So that's me out for now. I'll see you guys in a couple weeks' time.